June, uh, June, June 6th, 1944. Anyone who is relatively connected to history or familiar with history could probably tell you what that day was called. So if you know June 6th, 1944, what was that? D-Day. That's right. In the middle of the World War, Allied forces banded together to send 156,000 troops to storm the beaches of Normandy to fight against the Nazi powers in France that were there, to lobby a massive attack, one of the most significant maneuvers in military history, uh, probably the most significant. And it was comprised of primarily, majoritively, three forces being the United States, Great Britain, and Canada. That was the largest sum of those 156,000 soldiers. But it wasn't only those three forces. It was also, uh, there were also Australian soldiers, Belgian, Czech, Dutch, French, Greek, New Zealand, Norwegian, Rhodesian, and Polish forces present and, and aiding in some way on that day of Normandy. And our, our general of the military that day, Dwight D. Eisenhower, was very aware of what he was asking the troops to do, of the sacrifice that would be paid that day, of what those soldiers would face and experience as they rode the U-boats and the fronts of those boats came down to German fire when they dropped the soldiers um, by uh, the airborne divisions and as they sent uh, pilots to bomb and to fly and all the different aspects of that invasion that day, knowing what he was asking of his soldiers, he gave a speech and he said this, Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. I love this part that he gets to right here. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats and open battle man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. As 
Today is the last series or the last sermon in this six-week series that we've been in talking about missional moments, the call for all of us to live on God's mission, recognizing that God has given all of us different skills, different resources, different opportunities, different relationships. God has given all of us things specifically that he expects us to use for his mission, for his purposes, and that we'll give an account one day on what we do with what God has given us on this last sermon in this series. I want to call all of us to live urgently with wartime mentality. See, what happens is as we live in America, as we live in one of the most blessed and prosperous nations in all of history, it's easy for us to be comfortable. It's easy for us to live in a peacetime mentality. And we live differently when our country is in peacetime versus when our country is in wartime. One of the things Eisenhower pointed out in this speech was that there were people on the home front providing significant support to these troops that he was charging to go out and lay their life down potentially for the good of the world. See, this charge he was giving to these people of many different nations and many different backgrounds I'm sure as you look through all those different countries, there could be different values, different opinions, different perspectives, different things that they might qualm over, might disagree about. But the day was urgent enough. The enemy was significant enough. The cause was great enough to get all of these people to go, you know what? We probably need to set aside our differences right now and work together because we have a common enemy. Eisenhower recognized this, and he called out that enemy in this charge. He encouraged them with the fact that our people on the home front are supplying us with resources and soldiers in reserve, but also recognized, I need to give them a dose of reality before I just send them into this, recognizing what they were going to face, recognizing what he was asking them to do. He said, your task will not be an easy one. He said, your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He says, he will fight savagely. Imagine you're one of those soldiers who's getting geared up, loading up on one of those boats, getting onto the plane, hearing that this is not going to be easy, hearing your enemy's well-trained hearing they are well-equipped and battle-hardened. And your enemy will fight savagely. It puts you into a different frame of mind. Can you imagine if on that day, Dwight D. Eisenhower would have said something along the lines of, now guys, I know this is a big deal we're working on and we've got a lot of people working together on this, but you know, really, no pressure. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal. I mean, we might suffer some loss, but it's probably not going to be that difficult with how many people we're sending. It's probably all going to be good. And then those doors fall down on the U-boats. And if any of you have seen any of the historical footage, or if any of you have watched the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan, you see the terror that ensued that day, the lives that were laid down in an instant, sacrificed for our freedom. Eisenhower knew, if we're sending our soldiers into this, I've got to give them a charge. 
I've got to commission them. I've got to make sure they're aware what they're going into. I've got to make sure that they go into it knowing it's not going to be easy and that they have a savage enemy. In this series, my hope and my prayer, you might be someone who's sitting there going, oh, this is the last series of the Mission of Moments. Thank God. Hopefully he's done telling us to be missional. Hopefully we're done hearing about, about sacrificing for the good of the kingdom. Hopefully we're done being confronted and being called out of our comfort zones. And hopefully I can go back to now feeling a little more comfort with, with the way that I'm living and not being confronted by these truths. And I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God do not let us feel that way. But that we would sense and realize that we live in wartime. Might not feel like it in America, but there are people dying today for the cross of Christ, for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for us, we ought to ask, what do we need to know about our enemy? What do we need to know about how we wage war in this eternal battle that's going on? Because although that day in 1944 and the years surrounding counted significant sacrifice. And there might be military families in this room right now who have felt significant sacrifice or watching online. And we thank you for that sacrifice. We can't thank you enough. Our words fall short if life was lost in service to the country. And even at that great of cost, the ramifications of the war that we are in as believers are eternal. It's not did someone lose an arm or lose their life? But did they lose their ultimate life, their eternal life separated from God? The implications, the ramifications, the consequences of this war are eternally significant. And so we wage war differently. We recognize our enemy is not Hitler, is not Nazi Germany. We have a different enemy. So today, going back to the verse that that was read in the video, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you've got your Bible, if you've turned there real quick, Paul talking to the church in Corinth. In verse 3, he says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Meaning we, we, ha we live in the flesh, we live in these bodies, but our war is not done with the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, the warfare that we have, the weapons we have, are not bullets or blades, are not tanks and planes. Our weapons are different. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapons are the word of God. Our weapons are the gospel message of Jesus Christ recognizing that we're not waging war, as this is pointing out, against flesh and blood. Recognizing our enemy is not any human. And a lot of times as Christians, when you have been transformed by God 
to where you've chosen to repent from your sins, from a lifestyle of sin, and turn to following Jesus Christ and choosing to make that dedicated commitment where I am trying by the grace of God to live a lifestyle that is holy, where God is working in me to live in a way where I want to please him, want to serve him, want to follow him. And since I'm living that way, it's easy for us to look at those who have not been saved by the grace of God, those who don't know God, who are living in sin, indulging in sin and going, ugh, I can't believe people live that way. And we forget it was us. We forget we were there. And I could go to Ephesians 2, where the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, you who were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the powers of the principalities in, in place, that you were just like the sons of disobedience, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, saying, we were there. I remember one time when I was in Bible school, you're going to roll your eyes a little bit, coinky dink, I was at Chick-fil-A. I was at Chick-fil-A one day enjoying some of Jesus' chicken, those sanctified waffle fries, and I was reading my Bible, I was studying, and there was a family there with a baby. And the baby was letting the family know that it was displeased with something. It was crying, screaming, fussing. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying to be, you know, I'm, I'm in Romans and I'm learning deep theological stuff. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't focus right now. Okay. Surely they're going to make that baby happy in a minute. All right. Do I need to go get a bottle or something? Like, and this annoyance in me, I know none of you have ever felt that way. Shame on me. And, and I remember it was like the Lord used that moment to show me something. And it was like this concept came to me of, you know, that's kind of how we view sinners because I was a baby one time. I'm sure I cried and screamed and annoyed some other people plenty of times. And not only that, let's fast forward to now I've been married seven years and have two daughters and I've been the person with the screaming baby. And so, but what sometimes we can do is we can look at people who are prisoners of sin and we can look at them like annoyed, like, come on, can't you, don't you see? How could you not know? How could you live that way? How could people live like that? And we expect of people who don't know the Lord to live as if they do know the Lord. And we get indignant. And what we do is we become the Pharisee that Jesus rebuked, who's saying, I thank God that I'm not like those people. I thank God that I pray every day and I give, I give tithes and that I fast often. And I thank God that I'm not like those people, Ugh, those nasty, filthy, wicked, ungodly, perverted sinners. We forget what Paul said in Ephesians 2, saying, this was you. We were there. And recognizing that these people are not the enemy. We oftentimes fall into the trap of seeing sinful, ungodly people as the enemy rather than prisoners of war. Recognizing there is a war going on for the souls of mankind. And we can just pursue our American dream. 
with our perfect career, our good 401k, our perfect house with a white picket fence and Lassie chasing the kids around, which are all good things. I'm not telling you don't have a nice house and don't have a white picket fence or any of that. Those are gracious gifts from God. But when they become the focus, the priority, the, the idol of our lives, they become idols. That idol becomes an idol. These good and gracious gifts from God can become the gods of our life. They can take the throne of our heart and we can forget that we are in wartime urgency. That we have an eternal mission. Remembering what I pointed out last week. That yesterday set a new record for a number of people who went into eternity without knowing the name Jesus. Without hearing the name Jesus. And today when midnight strikes, there will be a new record set for people that enter into eternity without hearing the name of Jesus. And when you think about that, as a person who loves golf, when I'm on the golf course and I hit a bad shot and I can get all upset about it, it really does not matter at all. And this also ought to make me evaluate how much time, I don't, why am I saying this right now? I don't want to be up here saying this. And it needs to make me think about how much time I give to that. It needs to make me think about how much time not only I spend on the golf course, but also how much time I might be looking at YouTube videos trying to fix my swing, which is a lost cause. Might mean to make me think about how much I want to use my money for my own comforts, my own pleasures, rather than for eternal kingdom agendas. Might make me think about how much I want to use my schedule and my time for my own pleasures versus God's mission. That if we look at the war and we live, because when, if America was declaratively at war right now, then we would think and live differently. People handle their money differently. They're like, we're at war, don't know what's going to happen, so I'm not going to spend a certain way that I would have spent if it was peacetime. People participate in things differently. That's why there was wartime gardens or whatever it was called, people banding together. That's why certain factories that were making cars started making tanks and bullets because of wartime. We're different under wartime. And so we recognize the weapons of our warfare. We don't wrestle or we don't, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, recognizing the battlefield is the belief of mankind is the hearts and minds of the souls that we see and encounter on a daily basis. Recognizing here in this warfare terminology that we have weapons that pull down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, going, this is contrary to what we know to be true in God's word, and we're waging war to try and get people to see that trying to get people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is another one of the more famous passages relative to warfare mentality, wartime ideology as it relates to our walk with Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul talking to the church in Ephesus says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, there it is again, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. 
One more time, Paul is saying, guys, our battle is not with other people. When you see that person who you feel like is the enemy, they're not the enemy. They're a prisoner of the enemy. And so that, re- that affects the way that I would respond to them when they lash out at me or accuse me or speak falsely about me. It affects, different, it affects the way that I would pray for them. Listen, if there's someone in your life who you think is a sinner or a wicked person, ungodly, and you're not praying for them, it shows that you don't understand that we're at war and they are someone who is a prisoner of the enemy. That politician who you think is evil and ungodly, are you praying for them? Are you praying that they would come to faith in Christ? That person that you can't stand or that person who makes your life hard or that coworker who presses and mocks your Christianity, are you praying for their soul rather than praying that God would remove you from that? What if God would use you in that person's life? So he shows us that these people are not the enemy. See, sinful people are not the enemy. Our bottom line this week Sinful people are not the enemy. They are prisoners to be rescued from the enemy. I'll say that one more time. Sinful people are not the enemy. They are prisoners to be rescued from the enemy. And so when we see people living in sin, do we become indignant or do we become heartbroken? Recognizing I used to be a prisoner too. I was locked up. I was bound to sin. I didn't know the joy that comes in Christ. I didn't know the freedom in Christ. I didn't know the hope in Christ. I didn't know the love, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. And that's why they do what they do. So recognizing we're not wrestling against them, we're wrestling for them. We want to wage war against our true enemy. Paul goes on, To say this, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Let me pause for a second. Let me just say, if you want to stand for truth, stand on God's word, it's going to become more and more and more uncomfortable for you in the days to come. If you can't see that in our world today, let me just wake up, call, newsflash, It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. And that's where we have to recognize we're we're waging a spiritual war, not against the people who are going to accuse us, not against the people who are going to say things about us. They're prisoners who we need to be praying for and trying to reach. But fasten the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. Notice if you're in wartime, you're going to keep alert. Ask any soldier who's been deployed. There's a different awareness when you're over. When you're in wartime, keep alert, he says, with all perseverance, making supplication. That's, that's a begging prayer. That word supplication is a begging prayer for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as 
I ought to speak. You know, it's funny. I was riding one day to Milwaukee with an ex-army ranger who has seen combat, has a purple heart, has a pretty massive scar on his, on his torso uh, from an IED, a bomb that went off on his unit. And um, one day I was riding with a group of guys down to Milwaukee with this guy. He was driving. And it didn't take me long to notice, wait a minute, why is it every single time we get to an overpass, he goes to the left lane? Uh, his training and his experience and his wartime mentality infiltrated his civilian moments to where he was always alert even when there wasn't a threat. Even when he felt like he knew there were no IED bombs planted next to the overpasses in the States, but his training, his experience, and his mentality caused him at all times, anytime he's on the highway and he goes under an overpass, he got into the left lane. And that ought to be a wonderful picture of us as believers. Not that we're just looking for, for, for danger everywhere, but we walk and live in a way where we recognize there is an enemy. And we train ourselves so much so in this wartime mentality that we're always aware and we begin doing spiritual disciplines out of habit to where he wasn't even thinking about it. And I said, hey, hey man, why are, you, why are you doing this? You keep going over. And he was like, well, because... An IED blew up my unit. We've also been trained. Whenever we go under a, bomb, or under a bridge, we go this way. And I was like, civilian, mind blown, had no idea. The things that are thought of, the things they have to be mindful of. And so we keep alert. We keep vigilant. We are aware constantly that there is an enemy. And it might not be IEDs. And it might not be hidden under overpasses. But there are many, many ways that the enemy works against us trying to, one, bring us back into darkness, and two, to stop us from bringing others out of darkness into the light. Notice as Paul rattles off these, these garments of warfare, the armor of God, this breastplate of righteousness, this belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the, the feed shot with the readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, all these things that he says we are to take up. He continues this run-on sentence like Paul likes to do. He continues it running on. He doesn't stop saying, praying at all times. Notice he says this in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times. He doesn't stop he doesn't say this is a different thought. He says, take the armor of God, praying at all times. How do we make war against our enemy? We make war through prayer. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh. We have different type of weapons. I'll say that again. We make war through prayer. There's a quote from a famous pastor, John Piper. He said this, he said, until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. You know, if it rhymes, it's even more true. <laughs> it helps us remember it. Until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. He would go on in an illustration to make this point. He said, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is because they've taken a wartime walkie-talkie and turned it into a domestic intercom by which they ring up the maid to bring another pillow. I'm going to read that one more time. 
He said, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is because they've taken a wartime walkie-talkie, our communication to the commander, to the general, and they've turned it into a domestic intercom whereby we ring up the maid to, can I have another pillow? Could you please pad my comfort? Can you make this more convenient for me? We forget that this is a tool, a weapon given to us by God to tear down strongholds, to fight the enemy. That person in your life that you feel like is a lost cause, make war for their soul through prayer. That child that you're heartbroken about because you feel like they've turned away from the Lord and you feel like, uh, man, God, I, I want my child to know the Lord and serve the Lord, make war for their souls through prayer. That opposition you're facing in the gospel work of God's mission, make war through prayer. Before you go out to share the gospel, make war for the souls of the people who you're going to talk to through prayer, asking God, God, would you open hearts to the truth? Would you open eyes? Because no matter what I say, if you don't open eyes and if you don't open hearts, my words will be in vain recognizing God has given us this powerful, ultimate weapon of prayer whereby we can implore the God who can do anything to do the wonderful things that we cannot do. So we get to say, God, would you? And we get to act and then watch God do and give him glory for saving souls. The greatest commission, the greatest call on our lives to be contending for prisoners to come out of captivity, not enemies to stop being mean to us, but for prisoners to be set free from sin and death, called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear son, into the kingdom of light. We make war through prayer and we make war through evangelism. Turn 2 Corinthians again, this time chapter 5. And, you know, I'm going to skip some verses because of time's sake. Well, we'll go to, no, we'll go to verse 11. This is right after Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. And he's talking to them right after he finishes telling them, hey, these bodies that we have, these are a tent. They're temporary. They're not ultimate. And he says, he goes on to tell them, we're going to have a new home, a new glorified body from God. And, uh, and he's encouraging them with that. And then he talks about how in that day we will give an account to God. We will stand before him on judgment day. This, this sobering reminder always for us that we are to live in light of that day, live in light of eternity because it affects the way that we live today. Coming out of verse 10 where he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing that there is a judgment day coming, we persuade others. And then he goes on. He says, 
but what we are, uh, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church because they were false apostles preaching false gospels who were attacking Paul, saying that he doesn't know what he's talking about. So Paul has in this letter been making cases for the reason that he is a true apostle about the true gospel. So he's making more case right there. That's all that is. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, or that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Saying that we are called no longer to live for ourselves. That we are in his mission, called to be living for his purposes. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Like what we've already talked about, the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh. We don't look at people according to the flesh. We don't look at them as a man, woman, different race, different socioeconomic background, whatever different things. We look at them as eternal souls to be saved. We don't consider people according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's a beautiful, famous verse explaining to us that if you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're a new person. God has come in by the Holy Spirit and changed your heart and made you new. Removed this sin nature and given you the Spirit of God, whereby he works in your heart to think differently and love differently and desire differently and live differently. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That Jesus Christ dying on the cross, paying for our sins, our sins separated for us from God, and God reconciled us back to himself through Jesus Christ on the cross. Not only did he reconcile us and bring us back to him, but he said, now that you're back, I'm giving you this ministry. I've reconciled you to me, and I am giving you the ministry of reconciliation so that you can be about this too. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, representatives for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus, God, Paul is preaching the gospel. He's saying God made Jesus who didn't know sin to become sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is known as the great exchange. We get Jesus's righteousness where we come back into God's family. Jesus took our sin, paying the penalty for us. And he's saying, since that's the case for us, we now go to others and say, hey, he did this for you too. 
It's not, I'm good and you're bad and stop doing that. It's, I've been set free. God wants to set you free too. Would you be reconciled to God? I used to be a prisoner of sin too. I used to be a slave to it. I know what it feels like to be burdened in chains of slavery to sin. And Jesus Christ set me free, making me a new creation. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, I got the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He took my sin, and guess what? He wants to do that for you too. There's forgiveness available to you too. That Ephesians 2, what we talked about, where it says that we were children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. But God, in his great love with which he loved us, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was by grace we have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a free gift, and we go around giving gifts from our good and faithful Father who has sent us here as ambassadors, saying, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Would you like a taste? I was a prisoner of sin and I'm not any longer. Would you like keys to being set free? It's faith in Jesus Christ. I have found bread of life. I have found living water in Jesus Christ. Would you taste? Would you drink? Would you eat? Would you see how good the Lord is? We make war through evangelism. Eisenhower gave that great speech to the soldiers and thank God and thank those soldiers that they were victorious. Our, our world could look a lot different today had they not been. And I think if Eisenhower were on the gospel mission and he were giving that same speech to us today, it could sound like this. Soldiers, sailors, nope, that's the wrong one. There we go. Soldiers, Brothers and sisters, servants of the Most High God, you are about to embark upon the great commission toward which we have striven these many years. The eyes of the world in heaven are upon you. The hope and prayers of God-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, you will bring about the destruction of the satanic war machine, the elimination of demonic tyranny over the oppressed peoples in sin, and security for ourselves in eternity with Christ. Notice this next line. I didn't change a word. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained, well equipped, and battle hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 2021. Much has happened since the cross of Calvary, that terrible day, that wonderful day. Our God has bodily resurrected Jesus Christ, has inflicted upon the enemy great defeats in that resurrection, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God and the faithful devotion to one another. Our God has given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserve of trained and fighting Christians. The tide has turned the free men of the world are marching together to victory. 
Christ has already given us this victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion, and duty, or your devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than victory, for victory has already been given to us. Let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Let us beseech God today. God, we need you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, God, for reconciling us to yourself. Thank you, God, that you did not leave us in our sin. You did not abandon us. And even though we ruined it, we messed up the relationship, you made it right through the blood of Jesus Christ. You have reconciled us to you. God, I ask that you would give all of us who have been reconciled to you the urgency of this commission, this call, this mission to reconcile others to you. That there would be nothing in our lives more important than knowing you and making you known. That you would help all of us evaluate our lives and ask ourselves, what can I let go of to make more room for eternally minded mission? What in my life do I need to cut out so I can make room? Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you administer to hearts and speak to each of us what you want us to change in our lives. Things you want us to do, things you want us to let go of, relationships you want us to be intentional with, and help us to be sensitive to your leading at every opportunity that you've given us so that we can plead, be reconciled to God, and that God, you would wonderfully and mightily mightily save sinners through your grace, through your mercy, and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?